Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hey, this is Kion Wolf. I'm here with Betsy Kaplan in your podcast feed saying thanks for tuning in, first of all. And please keep this podcast going by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to wnpr.org slash donate. That's the place where you become a member or you renew your membership. And most importantly, you keep us going. And we can't do this without you. Kion and I, along with the, the rest of our team, put on the Colin McEnroe Show every day of the week for you because we love to do this for you and we love the show as well. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome. Welcome to the news. It's the end of the week. Uh, it's the end of our pledge drive, too. We're so happy, although we will, we'll do a little bit of uh, fundraising during the show today. But that is come to, way to come, uh, not even near yet. We're going we're gonna to talk first uh, about Jeopardy! Uh, and, of course, James Holzhauer, who's become a national news story with his unusual run in the game. We're also going to talk about podcasts, whether podcasts are uh, good for you, bad for you, good for civilization uh, or bad. Uh, and we're also going to talk about Beyonce's well, I mean, it's really not just one thing, although we're going to focus a little bit on the Netflix documentary that accompanies the release of a whole lot of other Beyonce material and just kind of her status as queen of, of everything, basically. So uh, Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, and dancer, a founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Do I sound tired? I got up really early this morning to do the pledge drive, and I feel like I'm just wading through all this stuff as opposed to prancing through it. You sound Rand, great. Rand Richards Cooper is a contributing editor at Commonweal and writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine. Rich Holland is a principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center uh, and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. So we're going to be in with James Holzhauer. Uh, he is, I think, uh, has finished 16 wins of Jeopardy. But uh, what makes that it unusual is that he has won $1.2 million and maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, so he is now creeping up on Ken Jennings, the all-time money winner. But Holzhauer is winning it way faster. Let's hear a little bit about what that sounds like. Las Vegas, Nevada, James Holzhauer. Daily double. Window maximum, please. Yeah. What is anemia? Anemia is right. Daily double. Lead over Samir. All of it? Okay. It was Jesse James. Yes, indeed. What is Bangkok? What is Kyoto? What is Kyrgyzstan? What is Curiosity? What is Dead Cat? Answer there for Daily Double. <laughs> uh, it's 25,000. What is Moorish? Moorish is right. 4,400 off the one-day record, James. Okay, I'll try. Uh, and how much did you raise? 38,314. A new one-day record. 110,914. So, yeah, he wins over 100000 a day uh, on occasion. That actually would be a really good run for a Jeopardy! champion who'd won six days in a row. So Carolyn and I, Carolyn and I are going to have to lead this conversation because uh, I think we're the uh, veteran Jeopardy! watchers here. So uh, how are you handling the Holzhauer phenomenon? So I, I don't love his, like, gameplay tactic. I mean, he's changed the game of Jeopardy! forever. Jeopardy! is 
you know, it's this game of knowledge, but in he's turned it into this this skill involving like betting skill and buzzer skill and game game board skill the way that he always just goes for all the big money questions right away. So, I mean, Jeopardy's never going to be the same again because you're going to have so many contestants that are going to copy his style, probably not as successfully. So in that regard, I don't love him, but uh, it's it is pretty crazy to watch. And I love the rumors that he's a cyborg. I don't know if you're aware of these. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a professional professional gambler in life. Uh, so the betting comes kind of naturally to him. Uh, he's got some other strategies. He tries to hit the daily double, but not too soon. He wants to have a lot of money to bet when he gets to those da- daily doubles. And so I don't know, Rich, has this uh, washed up in your life at all? The uh, I don't feel like you're a Jeopardy watcher. No. You know, every now and then I watch it with my kids just to, you know, show up to the nine-year-old that I know something. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, no, nah, man. Game shows have not really worked their way into into my universe. However, I find uh, this guy really interesting. Um, I was just uh, taking a look at the sort of um, how perfect he is for this moment, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, and I was thinking about. Um, about what happens with culture, right? Mm-hmm. And that, like, every couple of years, it's going to flip, you know? And and he is part of what's flipping now. You know, we're going from uh, a place of, like, you know, not caring about intellectualism, not caring about, you know, core competencies in a lot of ways, that everyone can do this, uh, you know, this sort of DIY, DIYing your way through the universe. And now getting to a place where people are really knowledgeable and incredibly specific again. And that's exciting. So the interesting thing with him, and he admitted this, I read this in an interview because I've been following this and Googling it a lot. He prepared for Jeopardy by reading children's books, yes. which I think is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But there's, there is something so calculated about what he is doing here and oh, what yeah. he's come to do. Uh, that you didn't, you don't get that sense with like other, you know, other contestants, even ones who have had like long winning streaks. Uh, so it, I guess if since you watch it a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Is there a possibility that this just elevates the game? You know, like well, getting professional saying. gamblers it's, or professional card never, players as opposed to me playing poker, who someone still has to tell me what the rules are. <laughs> I just think it's never going to be the way it was before James hit it. Yeah, I wonder about that. First of all, there's it thrills me to know that there are people out there right now trying to figure out how do you beat Holzhauer? Like, what do you do? And what's happened a lot, which has made this show a little bit boring, if if you if the competition is what you get off on, is that every game is a blowout and going into Final Jeopardy, he's often sitting on $48,000. And, and the, the other person has one. Yeah, the, yeah, the other two <laughs> candidates have yeah. like 4000 and 2000 uh, So he's at liberty to bet anything he wants, uh, and I mean, nobody can come close to him. So, Rand, how's all this landing with you? Well, I watched a lot of Jeopardy, hundreds of episodes of Jeopardy going back to when I was a kid. I was the kind of kid who read a lot, and I always prided myself on knowing a lot of extraneous facts, and I liked to test myself against those people. And it was always daunting. To, to see on Jeopardy, there are people who, a, knew more, a lot more than than you did, and could summon it um, more quickly. I recall thinking at the time, wondering often when I was a kid, why did they politely start with the with the, mm. the lowest, uh, uh, you know, um, dollar values of the questions, and then work their way through? Why don't? And I remember thinking, why don't they just go for the big money? And I wondered whether they were being told not to do that. But every now and then, usually when he or she was way behind in the second round, a contestant would start going for the big money first. And I remember. Thinking, Thinking, well, if I was on this show, I would just go for the big money all the time. What's interesting to me is that there were sort of norms of the game 
that and and this guy and I'm not watching now, but from what I followed, this guy is sort of a norm smasher. And it's very interesting that we live certainly and quite ruefully, in my opinion, in a political moment when there's been a great deal of norm smashing in very high, indeed the highest places. So, so it's perhaps not surprising that we have a player who turns norm smashing, you know, to his to to, to his advantage. The one other thought I have is that. Um, in a way, over the decades, Jeopardy has um, uh, unwittingly contributed to ongoing arguments about what constitutes an educated person. Or is it? There have always been conservative cultural critics of higher education, you know, of, of the E.D. Hirsch variety, who who would uh, promote a kind of cultural literacy that was based on learning all mm. of these facts. Liberals tended to focus on pedagogical uh, processes, and that battle waged back and forth. Um, th there's a weird way in which, I don't know, maybe we're at a moment where, where the kind of I know more facts than anyone else, uh, abetted perhaps by the way in which in the internet we link from like one fact to another fact to another fact. It has its apoth mm -hmm. apotheosis in, 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 in this jeopardy. But I don't see a politics to that. In fact, I'm kind of in agreement with Rich that we've come to a moment where th there's a denial of facts that happens every day all the time. It's coming more from the right and it really goes back at least to, uh, to Bush 43, right? That uh, Karl Rove at one point uh, told some reporter he belonged to the reality-based community that knowing facts, having actual access to hard facts. Well, who would you associate that more with? <laughs> George W. Bush, Bush, Barack Obama, or Donald Trump? Clearly, Obama is the person grounded in facts and knowing a lot of stuff. And would be the best Jeopardy yeah, contestant I mean, would, by far. He would totally um, clean up a Jeopardy. Yeah. You know? So I, I don't see there being a politics to this. I mean, it's not like there's a lot of other game shows that rely on reflective knowledge. I mean, all the other game shows are idiotic. You know? yeah. I mean, I think the, there's another aspect of of this um, this kind of iconoclasty is that um, it only becomes that when it succeeds, right? I mean, I think people are constantly trying to uh, are working at breaking the norms, but we just don't call attention to it because they don't get anywhere. Right. For for the record, I mean, people have started jumping around. There's something called the Forest Bounce, which Holzhauer uses, which was started years ago uh, by a contestant whose last name was Forrest. And then it was really amplified by a contestant named Arthur Chu, where you never go sequentially in categories. You may jump, you may start in the middle of a category, but bounce into the next lane or, or another lane because you want to confuse your opponents. You don't want to stay in one particular category that allows your opponents to kind of set their minds a little bit. So that's one of Holzhauer's like... Well, and Especially because a lot of times Jeopardy has like their categories will have kind of a theme and, and there's like little clues. And if you started with a $200 one, you pick up on what is happening. Yeah. Like sometimes it's like an alliterative answer or something like that. So starting with the easier question will help build you towards figuring out the $1,000 question. So this kind of tactic would if you're not if you know when you're jumping around it's a lot harder to figure out wait what category and where are we it's a total intimidation factor sure. that he is really using very very well and I think Holzhauer is a little bit of a throwback kind of contestant too he's very unemotional uh, hence the cyborg hence the cyborg argument I mean we've recently had guys like Buzzy Cohen and Austin Rogers who's a New York bartender who were really kind of quirky and goofed around a little bit and made you know made faces and stuff in fact like that. I feel like Holzhauser Holzhauser is like he had to learn how to smile to be on this show. Like it looks like he never smiled before. Early on, like his first or second episode in, I remember he he. It was like the first time he smiled, like when he won. Does this make him less enjoyable or more enjoyable? It, it was uncomfortable. I was like, it was just the most awkward smile I had seen yeah. in a long time. It looked almost painful for him to bust that out. We have to segue into another category, but uh, just like Je Jeopardy, but. Um, 
I do want to say that, you know, obviously this has been kind of a windfall for Jeopardy. They are paying out a huge amount of money <laughs> to James Holzhauer, but the interest that has ratcheted up in the show is obviously a pretty big benefit to it. Although sooner or later, there's going to be a point of diminishing returns. Somebody's going to have to come in and take Holzhauer out because people aren't going to watch this forever. Right. It's getting a little boring now that, you know, he wins $110,000 every night <laughs> and the other contestants walk out with like $14 in their pockets. All right. So uh, we also read uh, an essay in the Washington Post. Uh, which complained about podcasts, which uh, particularly sort of at the sonic level, kind of suggesting that podcasts were an enemy of music. People were listening to podcasts instead uh, of music and that the voices on podcasts are very contrived and not natural. I don't know. I couldn't even entirely understand everything that this guy uh, was objecting to about podcasts. He's one of their music critics, I believe. Uh, And so – um, we thought that would be an interesting thing. You know, our podcast wasting our time and, and eating up too much of our brain space. I'm going to start with you again, Carolyn, simply because I happen to know you're in the process of launching a podcast. That is true. Um, fellow Nose panelists, uh, Rebecca Castellani and Teresa Kramer and I are about to launch a podcast that delves into uh, the show Big Little Lies on HBO, which is about to have its second season. Um, I, I kind of have a love-hate with podcasts, and it's definitely – sway is more towards hate, I'd have to say. I've been I've been a guest on a lot of podcasts as a comedian and um I actually have been a guest on podcasts that are that kind of, as Colin put it, like geek out on specific topics and shows. Like I'm a big murder she wrote fan. Um, my DVR is filled with like really crazy things. But I got asked, I, I had made a joke in a set once and I was on YouTube about Murder She Wrote and loving it. And this podcast on Murder She Wrote reached out to me to be a guest. And until that point, that was actually when I became aware of all these like podcasts that focused on all these tiny little things. And so I started kind of going into the world of podcasts and exploring them. Uh, I don't I, f- I feel like rich, like you said, it's hard for me to find a time to listen to podcasts, though. Like when is the good time to really have mm-hmm. this be a part of your day? Yeah. Well, Rich, would you like to amplify? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, I can't. The reason I can't listen to podcasts is that they they fall into a couple of categories for me. Right? Um, it's either, and I do agree with this with the writer from the from the uh, uh, Washington Post. Uh, the sonic quality is just awful, and um, for the most part, uh, that there are so many dimensions that we could be playing with if that is our medium, and we're not doing that um, yet. Uh, and um, and I'm going to just end up driving off the road if I listen to something that is really that that uh, intriguing if um, I can't participate in some way. Uh, I love listening to radio because I always have this fantasy that I'm just going to dial the number and have something to say and something to contribute. So I'm always kind of an active participant in the, in the conversation. Uh, but these pre-recorded things that don't have the kind of – um, the the sonic textures that I could really play with and replay and revisit, uh, just they really do nothing for me. I'd rather read a book, you know. I'd rather stop and be a part of the uh, of the article or be a part it of the language. Feel like you're kind of uh, it, it's like you're an outsider mm-hmm. with a podcast. It isn't. There is not that participation or the potential to participate. Yeah. Uh, and. Some of them, I feel like, especially the ones that are talking about, um, you know, all, all of these topics, it becomes more about the podcaster sometime than, sometimes than the topic, uh, which is a weird it's, – it's a weird thing to be mad about, but I, I sort of get mad when the – they like go off on these tangents and are talking about themselves rather than what we're there to talk about. I can see I'm going to have to stick up for podcasts in just a second, but <laughs> Rand, go ahead. Well, 
I remember when I was a kid, it, my parents would talk about having grown up uh, listening to radio, radio because they were kids before television. And uh, they, we, they loved to quote, you know, from the shadow, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. The shadow knows. And so we, we grew <laughs> up hearing these quotations from a, a bygone kind of entertainment. Mm-hmm. And, and my parents would actually get records of the old radio shows and we would listen to them. Um, and, and I remember asking them, uh, you know, they said we would listen to the radio overnight. And one, one day I said, well, what, what would you look at? Well, uh, I asked, child of television, well, what would you look at while, while you were listening to these shows? And they were perplexed. And they said, I don't know. I guess we looked at the radio. Uh-huh. So to me, that raises the question, and this gets to one of the reasons that I don't listen to podcasts, is that um, uh, unlike with, with, with TV, I would never ask um, myself, well, gee, what, what should I be doing while I watch TV? Well, I'm watching TV. I don't, I don't subject TV shows to the necessity of it being a, meta, a multitasking accompaniment to something else. I don't know when in, in my day I would listen for 45 minutes to a podcast. I don't have a phone, so I'm limited in my sort of d- device delivery. I could sit in my computer and, and listen to one, but I'm at my computer all, all the time. Um, I am, I'm not anti-podcast. Occasionally I'll listen to one and, and I'll like it, but I haven't yet been able to sort of this guy, the music guy who's complaining in the essay, one of the things he's complaining about is that podcasts are replacing things that are more valuable to him. I, I mean, I, hmm. I think that's the gist of what he was saying. It's like, oh, people are not are listening to less music because they're listening to podcasts. I, I suppose to some extent I feel that way about, about books. Um, and, and, you know, maybe podcasts are going to take away from, from my reading of books. It, they would if I structured them in my, into my life. So I'm, in theory, I'm pro-podcast. I've liked a number of them that I listen to, but it's just not part of my I life. I don't see podcasts. Yeah. Can, can I just step forward on, the, on behalf of podcasts, first of all, and say <laughs> most of the criticisms leveled, I, I think, uh, represent not listening to very much podcast. I mean, the sonic quality of stuff like some of the podcasts that are developed by, by the Gimlet platform, for example, like Limetown. I mean, this is the platform is basically put together by refugees from NPR who are really, really good mm. in making things sound good. And so th- these are dramatic podcasts, just like The Shadow that right. your parents I used to listen to. I didn't understand that criticism. And, and, you know, I mean, you can, for 30 bucks on Amazon, buy a really good microphone that you can use for your, for your you know, um, uh, Big Little Lies podcast. <laughs> oh, I kind of didn't get that. I see there's so much innovation. I mean, the reality is what we're doing right now, doing a show that happens from one to two and that people people are listening to, a lot of people are listening to you from one to two, it's probably got three to five years left on it, you know, and, and it's going to go away. And, and there's, I see so much rich innovation and, and unusual ideas and things that are being done. I'll give a real quick example. Uh, we were working on a show on scams this week, and I listened to an, uh, a podcast called Reply All which also may be, I think it is also a Gimlet podcast, and it's, it's a podcast that's about the internet. And what they did was one of them got contacted by a scammer from India. It was one of those guys who said, there's, there's a problem with your computer. You have to let me into your computer so I, you know, uh, so I can fix it remotely. And so they did it. Uh, they let him in and they watched what he did. And then they got to know him. And then they, they studied the company in India that was doing all this. And then eventually they befriended the guy that had hacked them. Uh, and I, I haven't listened 
to part two, where they fly to India to meet this guy. Oh, wow. So, you know, I mean, we were listening to it right before bed. I thought I would listen to 10 minutes of it. I listened to the entire 48 minutes or whatever it was. It was riveting, I thought. And, you know, this is a thing you can do in podcasting maybe that would be hard to do. Not not that Radiolab couldn't have done this, but, you know, I, I don't know. I think podcasts are great. Colin, the time that you spend listening to podcasts that you didn't like six, seven years ago, whenever it was, um, what, what has that replaced? Well, it might, might have replaced music a little bit in the sense that I might have had music on while I'm cooking. Cooking is a time I listen to podcasts a lot. You know, my hands are busy. My, mm-hmm. my ears and are, are pretty available. Um, so, yeah, it's stuff like that. If there's, I mean, I hate to say this, but if on those occasions where there's something on this station that I don't really want to listen to, uh, I'll just, you know, I don't even have Bluetooth sync on my car. My car's so old, but I can cable it in there to the auxiliary port and listen to a podcast that way. So um, sometimes before bed, sometimes if I just want to laugh. I mean, as Carolyn knows, comedy podcasts are a huge uh, industry these days. I've started listening to a Canadian one called Stop Podcasting Yourself. Um, But, you know, and it just happened to, they just, the way that they talk and laugh makes me I would think as a comedian, you would love podcasts. So, yeah, I mean, we really I have about definitely, 20 seconds left. Okay, well, I, I definitely see the merit in podcasts, but if, for me, it's just the struggle of finding the time. And I think mm. I'm a visual person, so mm. that that affects uh, podcasts for me. All right, so get ready for the launch of the podcast by the person who doesn't really like podcasts that much. <laughs> Still sounds like it might be pretty interesting. I know that show, I like it. All right, we're going to take a little break. People are going to ask you to help out, help fund this show. And so please respond appropriately. Okay, so uh, a year ago at Coachella, uh, Beyonce took the stage. She was the first uh, African-American woman ever to headline Coachella, uh, and she made sure it was a very, very big event. Now we're reaping the bounty of that event in terms of the release of music and uh, about a two-hour and 20-minute documentary called Homecoming uh, on Netflix. Before we dive into this, uh, let's hear Crazy in Love from Homecoming. Coachella, you ready? Let's go get on All right. So um, there's a lot going on here. If it sounds differently percussed than the version you know and you you haven't followed this whole thing, there's a marching band on stage, a fully uniformed marching band with a drum line. Uh, If you hear whistles and stuff in the back, uh, yeah, there's majorettes. There's all kinds of things happening on stage. About 200 people uh, take the stage at various times. Uh, The stage is often very full. There's a pyramid-shaped riser uh, on which a lot of the action takes place. So... uh, so the, we won't start with Carolyn this time. We'll start with you, Rich. I mean, just let's kind of go around the table and just talk about how this landed. This this hit home hard. Uh, one of the one of the first words that um, that uh, she sang on this on this piece, I think, set up uh, the entire uh, two hours or so of of um, of movie making. And it was uh, might be a black Bill Gates in the making, mm-hmm. you know, a completely amazing setup for uh, for what is going to be unpacked, how to be, you know, a black Bill Gates in the making and 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 challenging us to, you know, watch the, uh, you know, watch the cake being baked 
and um and uh, and sidebar uh apparently one of Bill Gates' staff actually let him know that that was that she had made that reference, and his response was, "Well, that's a strange combination of words." <laughs> Followed by, uh, "I wonder if she sang that in the super. If she said that in the Super Bowl, I better bing myself to see what other lyrics I'm in." <laughs> so Bill Gates is just not down, no. and this entire show uh, was for people who were completely down with where with where she was taking it, uh, with an understanding of you know of uh, what uh, black girl magic and black girl power is really all about, and folks who are enthusiastic about rolling up their sleeves and championing her all the way through. The performances were off the hook. Um, the the arc of of her story about you know where she was with her pregnancy and trying to breastfeed babies and you know and all the complexities that were in her life at that time and you know and to witness this woman with these cameras pointing on her you know like it's Instagram movie you know twenty four seven through the making of this uh, and you know and to see the grace and composure and generosity that she had for everybody there while still you know, insisting on achieving uh, a level of perfection uh, that I've yet to see in a live performance. Uh, Mind-boggling. Everybody should see it. All right. Rand, how about you? I think Rich liked it. That's what I'm taking yeah, yeah, away. It was a good... I loved it. And, and, I, and it's rare that you find a, a film or a show because there's the show and then there's the film about the show and there are interesting distinctions to be made. But that is uh, simultaneously just simply thrillingly enjoyable, that you can just sit back and enjoy it if you want and not think about it. But at the same time, on the other hand, also fascinating uh, and and challenging to think about. I, I think we could actually talk about what this show represents and what, what went into it for hours. That There are so many points. But at the same time, if you just want to like get into it as music and performance, you can do that as well. I, I'll say, that, first of all, for people who haven't seen it, it's neatly structured between uh, scenes of the actual performance with this with this cast of 200 dancers and singers and musicians. And then we get shorter sections that show rehearsals and give some personal, as Rich mentioned, personal background into uh, that moment in Beyonce's life. Um, I would point to one thing. First of all, the, the, the dance accomplishment is mind-blowing. At one point, it seems like they, they sort of have absorbed the entire Alvin Ailey dance company. There's that level of, mm-hmm. of dancing ability. And comically, there's a scene, there's a moment toward the end when, when her husband, Jay-Z, comes out and performs with her. And that's when you realize just how dance-oriented the whole thing has been because he doesn't dance. Mm-hmm. He just sort of walks around the stage, you know, doing what a rapper does. And then you realize, my God, everyone has been performing at such a high level of dance. The other thing I would say is the, 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 eclect, the cultural um, eclectic and blending. The, mus- the musicianship ranges from you know, rock and pop to classical orchestration to a lot of marching band stuff. And the stuff that's done with marching bands, the, the, the role of drums could hardly be underestimated in this, in, this, uh, in this thing. And there's a way in which the ultimately African nature of the, um, of the power of drumming is then refracted through all of these marching bands from historically black colleges. And that's another thing we can talk mm-hmm. about, the emphasis on yes. historically black universities. And, 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 and so you take this very music man, John Philip Sousa, white bread American marching band thing, and then show how uh, African-Americans 
have culture has made it its own. So the exuberant exploration of what it means culturally to be and politically to be African American is just brilliant in this movie. All right. Um, before we go to Carolyn, I'm just going to break in here with. Uh, I also checked in with our certified extremely young person, uh, Sam Hadleman, who is also kind of our uh, professor of hip hop here uh, and youth culture in general. He's down at Stetson University in Florida. Uh, here's what uh, Sam. I was sort of wondering whether really really young people also think Beyonce is cool. You know because. Beyonce has been around for a little while. Here's what Sam had to say. Beyonce is like a a cultural queen. Mm -hmm. Like regardless of like anyone within 10 years of me, Beyonce has just been able to craft and create this image that kind of goes beyond the means of like a superstar. It's kind of like what I've been described as what Michael Jackson might have been like. Yeah. Where the way that she presents herself with uh, the, the way that she dresses through her release of her music, it's, it just kind of transcends the normal way of a superstar, and I think my generation really, really accepts that. She's she's like she's uncomparable when it comes to her choreograph and this, the attention to detail as you saw in the homecoming theme, the uh, the sorority and fraternity theme. Uh, there's just no one that even comes close to her level of production in every aspect of performance. All right, Carolyn. Yeah, so this is going to be a refreshing twist. I actually love something that we watched for the nose. So. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it would be hard not to love this. Uh, I mean, I actually, one th- I don't normally like watching concert footage. You know, it, it feels, it's kind of that, like, you missed out on it. Why go back and see it? But this was one of those things, like, so worth seeing. Um, and it is really well shot. And I like how... Um, the the editing of this is just brilliant and beautiful. And there are so so they filmed both of her shows like on the weekend. And one night she's every the yellow is the color theme, and then the other night they have the pink color theme. And I loved the edits that were just like magical, where they mm-hmm. were splicing between the two shows. Um, the choreography to me as a dancer, I, you know, I was blown away. And and by the quality of dancing, uh, although to me it wasn't the moment that Jay Z came out that I was that I really saw how great the choreography was. It was when Destiny's Child came yeah. out, mm-hmm. and Everything had been so sharp and so hyper rehearsed, and then Destiny's her, you know, Destiny's Child came out, and they're they're doing they're moving to the music, <laughs> you know. They clearly didn't get the uh, the boot camp rehearsals that everyone else did. Um, Nor would they have been hired if they'd had to go through that right, process. Right, obviously. The last <laughs> they were third barely... of it, the choreography sort of it becomes just more like a big party. The last yeah. third, most of the yeah. choreography is in the first half of it. Well, and I think that that is pace because you know Beyonce is. You, you know, she that that is a whole lot for her to carry uh, under any circumstance, and uh, you know she was just coming back after having a uh, a very intense pregnancy and everything, and she talks about that. That was crazy to me in the documentary when she talks about her diet. After, right. You know, this yeah. is, the, the, one of the things this is, is the story of an incredible diet. She'd been up to, I think she said 218 pounds mm-hmm. at the top of her pregnancy with the twins and she's down looking like, you know, Beyonce usually looks by the end. I think it, her diet involved eating one apple for three months. Right. I mean, she's like, like no that. carbs, no yeah, alcohol. She lists all the things. Yeah. Yeah, so just I, I just want to say a couple of things about this. First of all, it cannot be understated the degree to which this is a very generous valentine to the HBCUs, right? I mean, we, and I see very generous because that's 
that's not an experience that she had, as she points out during the film. She didn't go to an she HBCU. She wanted to, though. She that wanted to, but Destiny's Child was her college instead, she says. Mm-hmm. And they often did rehearse on those campuses and stuff like that. But, um, you know, so it's, I think, a very, very generous thing. She has made homecoming, which I'm given to understand at um, at an HBCU, is like way, way, yeah, way yeah. ratcheted up above what we would typically think of homecoming, going to some other kind of college, uh, and, and made it about that. And it often is probably to drink some water and get some rest, but also often is not on the stage while some of these other performers are doing their stuff. You know, she she really lets them shine. And, and so to me, this is an act of great generosity by the, you know, the biggest superstar performer of right now. However, I'll, I'll be the one person who introduces a quibble. I, the way that it's not generous, like if you really want to know how this came together in some kind of traditional documentary way, there is, there's a lot of backstage kind of vague stuff. But there isn't, well, here's the choreographer. Here's what his name is. And he's going to tell you, you know, and there's the music director over here. That's what his name is. And there are some remarkable performers, including these kind of dancing twins, who are never introduced. I I mean, if you want to know a lot about how this came together, you're going to have to do some outside reading because that's not what she does in this thing, nor does she really kind of explain, for the most part, who these people are, how she got them, you know, and, and, and how they fit in to her overall plan. I will say that, however, there are some very interesting, poignant moments. You know, she's um, she's not a person who really tells you a lot about herself. But for example, there's a moment, speaking of Carolyn and the diet, where she has dieted down to a point where she can fit into one of her <laughs> old costumes. And we have a supremely uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z moment where she uh, FaceTimes him on her uh, iPhone. Look at this. Look. And he's kind of, yeah, that's great. Uh, and, and you can see her face fall a little bit too. Like the one guy she can't, she can impress any guy in the world <laughs> except Jay-Z who she's still trying to win over. Yeah. One of my other favorite moments was she's having like a production meeting and she's like, this is not where it needs to be. This needs work. Mm-hmm. It's my anniversary. I'm leaving. Right. Um, So I I want to get your reactions to that. But also I asked Sam about that, too, like what she withholds, what she tells us. Here's what he said. Yeah, I would agree. Well, I think that she's just one of those artists that's louder in her music Mm -hmm. than she is in person. And that's where you get a lot of the details from. Right. When she has her and uh, Jay-Z have spoken to length about it. And Jay-Z talks about it a lot on his record that rivaled 444 after Lemonade, that they they want to be completely transparent in their music. But uh, when it comes to interviews and presenting themselves in that nature, yeah, you're right. Beyonce's pretty soft-spoken. Um, but I think that also comes along with the status that she's kind of apprehended, where she's not just a normal superstar who has to give interviews, who has to tell you. Like, she has reached such a stardom that she, the informa- like, she doesn't have to give you information like other, uh, like other artists have to. So I want to hear Rich and Rand on this. Did you I, get I think, the backstage stuff that you wanted to get? Uh, yes, I did, mm-hmm. and, and I'll explain why. Because I wasn't expecting it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, it said it's... And I think uh, Sam... Uh, just um, didn't respond actually in a way to your to your to your challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that the challenge that the challenge you were saying that you were offering was not whether Beyonce was sharing um, herself, but whether she was being generous in sharing the accomplishments. Well, to, to and be the fair to Sam, I, I asked him a slightly different question, oh, so okay. he was responsive. Anyway, right. go ahead. Um, and. Uh, to me, this this really is of the now, right? It's and I get back to a statement I made earlier. This was an Instagram movie, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. It was little vignettes, little sound bites, little filters, um, uh, all of what it takes to get these immediate pops that you have to connect the pieces together yourself uh, to create the composite. Um, 
it's unusual uh, for a two-hour documentary um, if we're going to see it as a documentary, right? right. But if I'm going to see this as like scanning through someone's Instagram Instagram feed, which is the way it felt to me, I was completely riveted and well, I was are, in it. There are moments where it goes – the cuts go drastically out of focus, like somebody mm-hmm. is Instagramming from the wings or something like yeah. that. So I think that's a really great point. Yeah. What well, about you, Ray? You know, that's something that was interesting to me. Maybe this relates to your, your question about her role in this. There, there's an element of mass idolatry. There's a constant hysteria in, in the crowd about her and she's often in positions – um, of, of terrific prominence. Sometimes she's not there and other people are dancing, but she's either up on a crane above, above mm-hmm. the audience or she's like an empress at the top and, and she comes down. And there's also a strange and to me, signi- especially in the first half of this, signature mix of, of sort of the, the sinuous and sexy and the martial. There, mm-hmm. There's a kind of martial element to this. There are there are berets. There was a little bit of a Huey Newton look to the yeah. to the berets and the black. And there are there are kind of mass movements that are that are rigidly controlled and, and almost mechanical. So there there were a few weird moments when I when I thought like oh would you know could Lenny Riefenstahl be directing this the 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 the, oh. the, the leader um, in in a in a in a massively charged environment where there's some sort of interestingly martial thing going on. There, there are curious undertones to the first half of this. That's cool. Um, what, what I see in that is, uh, is the power. Mm-hmm. You know, the absolute right. power to be, all, to be yeah. all of it, not just a little bit of it. Yeah. You know, not just the, you know, the, this aspect of power or this, you know, this, this militant fierce aspect of power. It's all of it completely integrated, whatever it needs to be at any given point. And uh, that to me is what's amazing about her. And you, you catch that in every look that she gives. Um, she makes a statement like, you know, that she's the diva. And, and when you take a look at her face that she's making it, she's what she is at that moment to me is the Mona Lisa, right? You have no idea what exactly is behind that expression. It could be uh, a, a kind of a, a coyness or it could be an absolute surety that, yeah, I really mean absolutely that I am the diva. And her demeanor right. is quite fierce in the first, part, in the first uh-huh. half of this. Right. We're going to have to break here. Uh, I think we all really liked it a lot. We all want you to watch it. Uh, so that's on Netflix where uh, Beyonce now has a 60 60- million dollar three picture deal that's before she sings a note um and but it's homecoming and we're gonna play out uh, with one of the songs hold up they don't love you like i love you slow down they don't love you like i love you back up they don't love you like i love you step down they don't love you like i love you can't you see there's no other man above you I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kion Wolf, taking just a few seconds out of this podcast that you're listening to of The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, you can't listen to it or you choose not to listen to it during the day and the evening, but you're going to be rewarded for that because we're not going to be speaking to you as long about asking you to, to donate to the show. But we do need that support. We can't do this without you. So please give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online at WNPR.org and keep this programming going. Now, it's possible that while you're listening to this podcast, Betsy Kaplan is figuring out the next show. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Or not. Or not. Oh, please take a break for once, Betsy Kaplan. But please show Betsy your support. Show us your support. This is the way that you send us a message that you want us to keep going. They do pay attention to those pledges we for do. this show. And 
when you call 1-800-584-2788 or you go to wnpr.org slash donate, you can write in the little box what you think. And they do pay attention to that stuff. So please give us the rating that is your membership by calling 1-800-584-2788, wnpr.org slash donate. And let's get back to the podcast. Thank you. It probably won't surprise you to know that people often compare me to Beyonce. Kion Wolf, Beyonce, three syllables. The uh, the O followed by the N. We're both carbon-based life form. Okay, nobody's ever compared me to Beyonce so far. Today's show was produced by Carlos Mejia, the Mejiasaurus, and me, Kion Wolf, with help from the other queen bee, Betsy Kaplan. The part of Bill Curry was played by DJ Collin with special guest 2 Chains. On Monday, we'll be back with one of our all-call shows. No guests, just you and Colin. And now, back to Colin. All right, time to make some recommendations. Let's start over here with Carolyn Payne. All right, so uh, my recommendation is another Netflix watch. Uh, It's a show called Lunatics. It's basically like a sketch comedy show uh, by the Australian comedian. I can't remember his name right now, but if you watched Jamie Private School Girl, uh, he created that character. It has some of that like cringeworthy humor that I I love, and his characters are just so over the top. It's a really fun and interesting uh, interesting watch, especially if you are a big fan of sketch comedy. Say the name again? Lunatics. Lunatics. We should be able to remember that. How about you, Rand? I want to recommend a restaurant that's been around for a while. It's having, in fact, soon its 20th anniversary, and that's Metro Bis in Simsbury. But it has moved, and it has a new location in the Joseph Ensign House. And that's a big old mansion on the main street that's right next to the Ensign Bickford Company, a company that's been there for like 150 years. It makes uh, fuses for explosives and other other things. That This house has been repurposed many times. It was a bank. It was a church for a while. And all of the spaces that were added on in the various iterations of this building are now at use in the restaurant. It, it's the, just the most beautiful place. Chris Prosperi, you, you, you hear him on the radio, the food schmooze all the time. He's a terrific cook, and it's a, it's a gorgeous place. So go out and see the new, the old new Metro Bis. Yes, I can second that endorsement. So can Wolfie. We've both been there. We've got the same tour you got, too, I think. Uh, all right, go ahead, Rich. So as someone who does not particularly like podcasts, mm. take this seriously as a recommendation. I'm recommending a couple of podcasts. Mm. Um, uh, first is, uh, and they're both in a similar vein. Uh, one is uh, Debbie Millman's Design Matters uh, at designmattersmedia.com, I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, yeah, it's a podcast about design interviews with, uh, with designers, but it's not nearly as insider as it might seem. Uh, it's uh, the way I look at it. It's, it's the worldview of the people whose job it is to craft worldviews. Um, so uh, take a listen. Really interesting complicated people who contradict themselves all the time in the most phenomenal way and try to find uh, a a recent one by a guy called James Victoria. He's got a really interesting way of looking at the universe. Um, Also, uh, shout out to uh, to 275 black designers uh, that were interviewed for a podcast called uh, Revision Path at revisionpath.com by a young guy named Maurice Cherry who makes it a point to document stories uh, before they're lost. 
All right. So um, I'm surprised 99% invisible didn't come up, you know, doing oh, yeah, design. He, they, he don't need any help anyway. So um, I'm going to do a podcast too. But first, I'm going to very quickly uh, direct you to uh, what I think is Beyonce, perhaps at her sexiest. So on YouTube, if you just type in Beyonce, Stevie Wonder, Ed Sheeran, Gary Clark Jr., some sequence of those names, you should get a nine minute clip uh, of Beyonce performing for Stevie Wonder uh, and doing a medley with Gary Clark and Ed Sheeran. And one of the really amusing things is that a certain point, it's clear that she decides to see how much she can make Ed Sheeran blush. And he being a redhead, you know, obviously the possibilities are almost endless. And so she uh, just turns on everything she's got. And it's great dancing, great singing, and uh, certainly Beyonce doing that other thing that she can do so well. The podcast I'm going to recommend uh, is called No Such Thing as a Fish. Uh, it's for researchers from the British version of Jeopardy, which is called QI on BBC, maybe a little bit more brainy even than Jeopardy. Uh, and what they do is they bring in each bring in a fact for each show. And the other uh, researchers, have, researchers have researched around that fact. A typical example would be that George Eliot, the writer George Eliot, uh, a woman, had an unusually large right hand, which her family didn't want uh, talked about in any of her biographies. But this occasions a long conversation with a lot of other research about George Eliot. So anyway, they're very funny. I know that doesn't sound funny, but it is funny. Uh, so no such thing as a fish. Uh, you'll enjoy it. Please support the show with these people who are going to talk to you now.